in the spirit of reconciliation. Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I don't think 10 years ago I heard the words social license to operate very often in a boardroom. I don't think today I have a board meeting where it isn't said more than once. Welcome to On Just Terms, a video podcast brought to you by the global law firm Herbert Smith Freehills, where we explore the future of Australia's litigation and regulatory environments and their impact on corporate Australia. I'm Jason Betts, a litigation partner at Herbert Smith Freehills, specialising in class actions and regulatory investigations. In this series, we look at the changing nature of corporate risk in Australia by speaking to the people at the front line of Australian litigation who will shape the future of the Australian legal risk landscape. On this episode of On Just Terms, I'm delighted to be joined by Arlene Tanzi, who among her many accomplishments over a prolific career, is a senior executive and a deeply experienced non-executive director of a number of Australian listed entities. Arlene's currently on the governing board of the Australian Institute of Company Directors, a member of Chief Executive Women and the International Women's Forum Australia. We hope that you enjoy the discussion as much as I did. Arlene, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of On Just Terms. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Very welcome. We thought we'd start general and talk a little bit about the overall corporate environment in Australia at the moment from a risk and liability perspective. It's probably uncontroversial to say that Australia is becoming more litigious. Certainly, we're becoming a bit more regulated. Um, I'm interested in how that's translating into the major risks as you see them for corporate Australia and, and how boards are grappling with those risks in this changing environment. It's a good question. I think it's very fair to say that in the last five to 10 years, the focus on risk has changed substantially and stepped up substantially, not just because of litigation, but because of all of the forces acting on corporations and directors. And of course, risk management, the first line of defense really is the corporate management. So in terms of where those changes have really come from, We have had a tremendous step up, particularly with COVID, on wellness and employee well-being. We all had to shift gears very quickly to deal with COVID and, and isolation. And now the future of the workplace, people coming back to the office and having that sort of mixed environment where you're doing some work from home, some work from the office, and how do we keep our staff engaged and well and part of the overall corporate culture is um, a very challenging area for us. Of course, climate change is um, becoming very challenging and I suppose many of us are waiting for some clear direction on reporting, on regulation. But in the meantime, the boards I sit on, those businesses are looking at what do we do, how do we do it, how can we contribute in both environment and social and governance to make ourselves the best that we can be. Other areas, of course, cyber. It's it's become a very lucrative profession for many around the world. And the level of sophistication, the level of time and attention has really ratcheted up. 
So that's very important to us. Um, creating cultures where we foster innovation within the organization and the risk of getting too set in our ways. Those kinds of risks are all now very current. The risk of litigation, it's always been a risk, but it's probably fair to say it has also stepped up. You're absolutely right. Australia has become more litigious. Class action funders have been very active. And I think, again, many directors are waiting for um, some outcomes on the disclosure safe harbors and on some changes in legislation that may allow um, for that hair trigger around uh, continuous disclosure to be a little bit less burdensome. It's a difficult line to walk well. We're certainly talking about that a lot when we're doing transactions, when we're changing strategies. Um, and I think that, you know, realistically, shareholders pay for class actions at the end of the day. Often the litigation funders and the litigation plaintiff's attorneys will take a lot of those returns so it can drive up insurance costs in directors and officers insurance and corporate insurance more generally in some aspects. And so really the benefit and the burden might not be quite right. So we're, we're advocating for and looking for government to address that. That's it's very interesting observation, and, and few people, if I may say so, would have your line of sight over what's happening uh, in listed corporate Australia. Uh, and just picking up your point about class action litigation, we've seen a lot of movement in that space, as you know better, better than anyone, a schizophrenic approach perhaps by the various governments of the day as to how to regulate funding. But I think it's fair to say we remain uh, subject to a pretty vibrant funding market. And in at least one jurisdiction, uh, Victoria, we've seen true, what I'll call US-style contingency fees introduced. Mm. Some relief into the Corporations Act around continuous disclosure, some relief for what I'll call a very light safe harbour provision. You know, you, you can't be prosecuted or, or litigiously unless there was a reckless or negligence, negligent withholding of information. Mm. Are you seeing any, in the cut and thrust of managing litigation risk, are you yet seeing any of those changes translate into a, a difference in what you're seeing in terms of the shareholder class action environment or uh, any lessening perhaps of the focus that I observe in corporate Australia on best practice continuous disclosure? I'm certainly not seeing the focus on best practice continuous disclosure falling away at all. We remain very focused on our obligations in that sense. But legislation, when it changes and when it shifts, it really does take some time to settle through a market. And I don't think there's been enough time. I've spoken to a number of the insurers for various of the boards that I sit on, because as the chair of the audit committee, I normally will have audit and risk and will often be involved in those discussions. And the insurers are also waiting for the legislation to settle and to shift and to see what the track record is. So as yet, we haven't seen much change. But what we do see in fairness is it is really the most egregious situations that do attract a tremendous amount of attention and a tremendous amount of litigation, perhaps a bit less on ones that might have attracted lawsuits five or six years ago. Arlene, I'm interested in the balance that boards have to juggle between 
focusing on compliance in a very litigious and highly regulated environment, particularly listed entities, uh, as opposed to the other thing that's very important, innovation, entrepreneurialism, taking risks, delivering value to shareholders. Could you talk a little bit about how boards are striking that balance and the challenges there? It's also a great question. Things have certainly shifted, um, but we have to remember whenever a pendulum shifts, it doesn't just shift to the center. It'll go a little bit further to the other side before it can settle. And so as things have ratcheted up in terms of risk awareness and litigation, certainly a lot more time has been spent looking at compliance, looking at risk governance. And um, initially I would say that did take a lot more time at board level. On all of the boards I sit on, I happen to, on all the listed boards, I happen to chair the Audit and Risk Committee. And so we're doing more in that committee on internal risk and the management of risk, uh, a risk-aware culture, and looking at how we can promote a true um, informed risk culture that also is entrepreneurial, that is innovative, so that what comes up to board does probably have a bit more focus on risk, but spends as much time as we need on innovation, on entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, risk taking as an opportunity. And um, in fact, we're probably spending more time overall than we were five years ago to get that done. And just lastly on that, a quick follow-up. I met that resonates that you'd be working harder than ever before because board packs are two or 300 or 400 pages yeah. and We've had the Royal Commission where there's this renewed focus on challenge uh, and, and I guess the general risk environment for directors and officers is higher. So any fairness to the proposition that that's a dampening effect on people wanting to be in those positions? Indeed. And, and I have uh, said very publicly that regulators need to consider getting the right balance with the director community and in fact the corporate executive community because there is a point where if that equation doesn't work, some of your most intelligent, well-informed and capable people may well elect not to do this anymore. I've had a lot of people say to me, I'm not sure if I wanna be on public boards anymore because the risk keeps ratcheting up. So. I think it's a true concern. I think very recently we are starting to see more of an attitude of collaboration and cooperation than perhaps two years ago. Um, and so that conversation may be a bit more muted at this point. Arlene, post the Financial Royal Commission, we've seen shifting sands in terms of, and lots of predictions in terms of the approach of the major corporate regulators, including ASIC. Recently, Joe Longo said what he sees as the immediate focuses, not unpredictable, uh, egregious corporate governance breaches leading to bankruptcy liquidation, uh, focus on the disclosure of non-financial risks. I think he's tapping into the ESG part there, uh, crypto and cyber. If you gave that list to anyone a few months ago, that, that would be expected. What I'm interested though in, although it's always good to get direction from the regulator, but what I'm interested though in is this post-Royal Commission, a potentially more litigious ASIC, not just ASIC, Austrac, APRA, the ACCC. How are, how are major Australian corporations trying to change the narrative of their relationship with regulators for it to morph more into a partnership uh, of collaboration? Because I know that that's been 
a, a constant challenge in an increasingly litigious environment. But I know that those at the forefront of it, like yourself, are interested in, in having that conversation. I think that's right. We are. Um, so a number of the regulators do have forums where they bring directors together for conversations and they are useful. They usually have touch points and areas they would appreciate comment on and they also take questions. And that's the beginning of a conversation. I have a very personal view about regulators. I've always been very lucky to have good relationships with regulators because I do believe in transparency and I honestly do believe if you do your job and work hard at it that we're all just people trying to do our best and regulators do understand that. So when they focus on egregious conduct, I think that's absolutely right. The, the role of the regulator is to be a check and a balance point for business. And, and it's important uh, just as a regulator and, and a government or a check on industry and on business. And so I think seeing now the conversation moving towards collaboration, which is happening in a lot of areas of government and business right now, it probably accords with my view as a corporate person and the view I've always had. So for me, this is a terrific uh, transformational opportunity for corporates and regulators to work together more effectively. Arlene, obviously one of your important roles is on the governing board of the AICD. And I'm interested in your thoughts of, on the AICD's work in thinking about directors' duties and including the best interest duty, but maybe also segueing into the very heavy lifting that the AIC is doing to elevate the debate around corporate Australia's response to climate issues and our economies and global economies move into a lower carbon environment? Let's look at those two and we might touch on a few others if you like. In terms of director's duties, it is really an interesting time for Australian directors to consider how that's changed from the goal of long-term sustainable returns for shareholders, full stop, to the consideration of a much broader stakeholder environment. We are looking at how to harmonize those goals. And I can tell you that it is not always easy to do so. The more you invest, for example, in climate response, the less you may deliver in EPS in a given year particularly cash earnings per share. So the balance points there really have to be very carefully thought through. And we are very aware of what the public is looking for, but also what our own staff and employees are looking for. We want people who care about the issues of the day and environment is one of those very critical issues. Climate change is a very critical issue. And they want to know the companies they are working for are aware and actively engaged. A quick so, follow up on that yep. one, Arlene, because you, you raise a really important point. It's not getting any easier as a humble external advisor to, to mm. advise directors on how to discharge their obligations. Because as you say, that obligation started a little bit ambiguously, but it's also now being reinterpreted in terms of the new reality of corporate Australia. Mm -hmm. It's helpful, isn't it? And I think the AICD is leading the charge here. It's helpful, isn't it, that the conversation about how to discharge that duty seems to be turning to 
thinking about the company's long-term sustainability and its and its reputation, its corporate reputation, rather than just the more the dollars and cents returns. I don't think 10 years ago I heard the words social license to operate very often in a boardroom. I don't think today I have a board meeting where it isn't said more than once. So it's definitely changed and it's changed significantly and that's a very good thing. It's exciting to see corporates, regulators, and government coming together to say, we need to work together on this. The AICD is and aspires to be at the forefront in policy formulation. We are hoping and looking for better guidance, better clarity around disclosure. And I think that one of the areas that is a higher risk area right now is actually greenwashing. Not only because the general public and all of your stakeholders are not prepared to have you say you're doing things you're not doing and they're going to be asking, but because the litigation risk around that is also shifting upwards. So there's both pieces working and working, I think, in the right way. The regulation is a check and balance and the stakeholder and public environment is a check and balance. Your own employees are also a check and balance. So, so these are all coming together to really bode well, I think, for some understandable standards around disclosure that we can implement, and also for directors understanding better how to balance those interests. And it seems ironically that the the experience in Australia over the last decade felt acutely at the board level of, of the increase in shareholder class action litigation. It's a bit of a training ground, it seems to me, for what Australian corporations are facing now in the climate space, because there's your point about, very valid point about greenwashing, but also I imagine corporations are going to be saying a whole lot about the targets that they're setting for themselves in terms of even if they're not in the extracting in industries, their, their mm. carbon footprint. And so having a reasonable basis for that sort of puts them in good stead to avoid the litigious aspects of that. The best defence is doing your work properly. That has always been the best defence. Do the work. And I think boards are doing it. Well, that's excellent. Um, I thought I might pivot to a final question which sort of changes topic entirely. But if I may say so, it's a prolific career that you've had and continue to have uh, in the senior executive space, among many other things. And I wanted to ask you at a personal level about what are some of the challenges you've faced over, over the course of your career? I'm sure you've had to overcome significant obstacles, but also what you've enjoyed the most about your journey that's led you to this space. It's a big question. Let me give it a shot. Probably the biggest challenge for me through my entire career has been getting bored. I have always switched areas, switched focus, switched what I was doing to continue to challenge myself. I didn't have a tremendous career plan, but I really liked solving problems. And so when people would say, oh, we don't know what to do about this or that, I would say, I'll give it a go. And that worked out very well in, in some regards, but it also put me in the line of fire for a lot of difficult situations and contested transactions and 
places where there was a lot at stake and people were arguing with each other. And I've always been grateful for coming from a family where I learned to be able to deal with that because we were a pretty um, hot-wired family, to be honest. So for me, that challenge was pretty much overcome by being able to do different things. I've been an investment banker. I've been an attorney. I've been a commercial banker. Now I'm a board director. And these are all very different kinds of endeavors, but I learned so much. And even within each of those jobs, I had different careers within banks, within investment banks, within everything I've done. So um, I think one of the things that's most important is to do what you enjoy doing. You will do better when you are truly engaged rather than you're forcing yourself. Every job has some elements you won't like, whether it's being a director and needing to wade through an awful lot of compliance work, or whether it's being an investment banker and needing to do the admin and paperwork behind your transactions. Every job is going to have some of that stuff. But if you can spend the majority of your time doing something that you enjoy and do it well, that's a great reward. I think if I, if I had a motto for my life, I might have two, but I would at least have leave it better than you found it. And um, trying to just make a contribution, trying to just use your powers for good, I think is a powerful way to live, for me anyway. So um, I've enjoyed most those times when people have come back and said, I learned something from that interaction, from working together, Almost every board I have ever joined, I'm trying to think if there's one where this is not true, it could be every board I've ever joined, I knew someone on that board already and they knew who I was. So it was not a cold, someone called me up and said, do you want to interview for this? Even though there were interviews for boards, but there were people who knew me everywhere I went. And so that's the other thing I would say in terms of advice to people is it's a long road always, always treat the people around you with respect. Even if they're having a tough time, they still deserve respect and consideration, and there's no reason not to be very generous with that. Very powerful observations, and I want to end on one question, which is, I know we're not where we need to be in Australia on diversity of all kinds at the senior executive and board level. Are you optimistic that we're moving in the right direction, even if too slowly, or is the mountain still a long <laughs> way to climb? I do think the mountain's pretty steep, and I'm thinking of diversity very broadly, diversity in terms of thinking. I am probably a person who has a slightly different view about some of the pressures on boards to appoint someone with X skill or Y skill because a very specific skill can become stale very easily. I think being a good director requires a combination of aptitude, attitude, skill base, and experience. And broad experience is very helpful. So even though I am not a technologist, I've spent years learning about cyber. I've spent years learning about technology. And it helps to be a learner and to have your training wheels on because it keeps you very current. 
Aline, you've been so generous with your time today. It's been an absolute privilege to have this exchange with you on Unjust Terms. Thank you so much for contributing to the show. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.